think that backpack's bigger than she is. And let's go ahead and stand. In verses 19 through 21 is our portion of this evening. <clears throat> First Timothy 5, 19 through 21. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. And let's pray. Father, as always, it is our desire and hope to be obedient to the word. Whether it offers us the brightest hope or whether it brings us to the lowest point. We ask to be obedient to the word. And so we pray for your help this evening and for understanding and always the grace to do that which has been instructed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may, of course, be seated. Well, of course, beginning in chapter 5, as we have seen, Paul now begins to take the concept of sound doctrine the importance of sound doctrine to a local church ministry, verses chapters 1 through 4, and begins to apply it to various groups of people that you would find in a New Testament setting. Um, And he began with the congregation generally in verses 1 and 2, that all people are to be treated with dignity from a position of humility. And then he moved into widows, verses 3 through 16, And then he moves, beginning in verse number 17 and through the remainder of the chapter, to elders. And our understanding would be that these are elders in the office sense of the word. Um, And I've talked about this. I mean, I, I think that the model that we employ of a pastor, not that there could not be more than one of us, but a pastor and deacons, is in line with the Bible, but this passage by its very nature certainly does seem to lend, at least to me, some credence to the idea that there will be more than one elder in an assembly, but we do not really have more than one elder in that sense of the word, so we will pose a couple of additional questions to what the text wants us to do. So in verses 17 and 18, Paul has explained to Timothy how elders should be honored. And we kind of worked our way through that passage last week. And this week, our passage is dealing with the subject matter of how elders should be corrected. And uh, I had to contain myself when our song leader stood up and said, there are no songs about that. And I thought... How about that? There are no songs about that. Um, So, elders, of course, by any metric that you would apply to the text of Scripture, are simply mortal human beings who have been gifted in some way for the task that God has for them, but have not developed supernatural 
ability to live beyond the normal temptations and constraints of humanity. And so there are going to be perhaps times when they themselves are out of line. They are teachers of the word. They're supposed to be examples of the word. And yet there is the possibility that there will be times in which they will fail in that. And one of the questions that we really don't have a good answer to from the passage is whether we are dealing with a known public sin, whether we are dealing with an ongoing sin, how it is that this sin is. Paul does not give us much light there. He does give us light And we want to do our very best to adhere to that light. However, in verses 17, 18, and 19, each, or I'm sorry, 19, 20, and 21, each of those verses bringing a different kind of light to us. And so in verse number 19, we have this Against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Any accusation against a pastor must be handled legitimately. Any accusation against an elder must be handled legitimately. Against an elder received not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now just as in Matthew 18, the church discipline passage, when Jesus is talking about witnesses, he is not talking about bringing along two people who are witnesses to the confrontation. In other words, I think the pastor has sinned, and he needs to be confronted about his sin, and will you go with me to talk with him about his sin? That is not suitable criteria. That is not what is meant. And actually, and I made reference to this this morning when we talked about the Old Testament, actually Paul is basing this in the law of Moses. Why this standard? Or what do we have to do to make an accusation against an elder legitimate? And I think we all understand, folks, that perhaps more than any other group of people within an assembly, pastors are going to be accused of things. It's just kind of the nature of what happens in public leadership and public ministry. And I have often said over the years that I have yet to figure out what is more frustrating, which is when people make up things about me or when they simply tell the truth. Because there's enough either way to to call me into question. Let me ask you first, however, if you would please to go back, and we will come back, of course, to 1 Timothy. But let me ask you to look at two different passages in the book of Deuteronomy. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 17 Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse number 6. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, Deuteronomy 17, 6, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall first be upon him to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. This, by the way, is the reference that Jesus was making when he said, let him that was out sin cast the first stone. 
step up to the plate. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So shalt thou put the evil away from you. But the real base passage, folks, right? The real passage that maps it out in greater detail is in Deuteronomy chapter 19, beginning in verse number 15. Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth, At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. So, one witness will not do. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, because I don't want to digress from the main point of the text. But I would just point out to you folks, in any situation in which you are making any accusation against another person, that biblically, the accusation of one person cannot stand. That is, the, that is the, 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 the boundary which God himself has levied upon us. And that doesn't matter whether it is one person making an accusation of a, against a pastor about sexual abuse. It doesn't matter if it's one parent making an accusation against a teacher for misconduct in the classroom. It doesn't matter if it's one teacher Right? Now we'll get into the, the, to the very nature of the witnesses in a moment. Right? But one accusation does not simply constitute one person bearing witness to the crime does not provide sufficient biblical warrant for the crime to convict a person and put them to death. Two or three witnesses. And as we see when we return to the text, Right? This is what is applied to pastors as well. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 19. <clears throat> Verse number 16. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, Before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he hath thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put away the evil from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life for go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Right? So God is very concerned, and we will come into this, folks, but God is genuinely concerned that justice be done. So, so here's the situation, right? You, make an, you want to make an accusation, and you want some form of retribution. You want compensation or judgment to be done. You want a penalty to be meted. Then the judges are supposed to gather the evidence and listen to the case and to do this in the presence of the Lord. And if it is found that that evidence is contrived, that it is false evidence, that it is not true, then that false witness is to receive the judgment that he desired. In other words, you stand up and say, I want this guy to die. 
This is what he did. And then there is the investigation and the judges go, he is not guilty, you have fabricated the evidence, you die. And this is to serve then as a deterrent to false accusation. It is not designed to let the criminal get off with it, which is the way we would spin it in our culture. It is designed to keep the innocent protected from false witnesses. That you understand that any accusation that you make in which you demand justification, if it can be established that you are lying in that accusation, that you will bear the penalty you desired. And God says this is designed to contain evil so you shall put away evil. And there's to be no pity here. Right? There's, There's to be no allowance for mitigating factors. This is a hard and fast rule. That is the basis. Now we could say, and we would say, we should say, well that is the Old Testament law. And you're absolutely right, it is the law. And you could also point out that we are not under the law. And that is true, we are not under the law. But that is nevertheless a standard that Jesus Christ himself has bound us to when it comes to our conduct in the church. Matthew chapter 18 And verse number 16, you know the passage, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. This becomes the criteria. It is the criteria that Paul follows. In 2 Corinthians 13.1, he writes to the Corinthians, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Now, while you're in Deuteronomy, and I'm assuming you're still in Deuteronomy, jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 22. What do we mean by witnesses? Again, the reality is, folks, and I mean, right, we're talking about sending pastors, so let's talk about me. It is possible that I could commit a sin that would be against one person that nobody in the world knew about except that person, and then what? Where does that leave them? Where does it leave us if it's only a he said, she said, or he said, he said kind of situation? And I think that the Bible does allow, and I'm not trying to develop a biblical theory of justice tonight, But I think that the Bible does allow for things that we would count as physical evidence to count as a witness against you. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse number 13. If any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her, and give occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her, and say, I took this woman and when I came to her I found her not a maid. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city. Again, let's be realistic, right? This is humiliating and embarrassing in a way that we could not envision in America. But nevertheless, this is the biblical standard that is being set forth, right? That there is physical evidence that this girl was a virgin on her wedding night. That's what's meant by maid. And her husband has made the accusation, one man, in a situation in which there could not conceivably be two witnesses, one man has made the accusation. No, she wasn't. 
than there is the allowance of physical evidence to be introduced to establish the matter. Verse number 16, The damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to wife, and he hateth her, and lo, he hath given occasions of speech against her, saying, I found not thy daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city, and the elders of that man shall take, shall, of the city shall take that man and chastise him, and they shall immerse him an hundred shekels of silver, and give them unto the father of the damsel, because he hath brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not put her away all his days. So again, I'm not trying to develop much along those lines other than this, folks. We say, well, but it happened privately, okay? There are other witnesses other than eyewitnesses allowed to bring testimony. And of course, in our world, we have an entire legal system, which we will get to in a moment, and we have other forms of evidence. But suffice it to say this, folks, right? Just simply an accusation. In other words, I would say this to any of you that teach in the academy in the school, right? That if you, if you need to talk to a parent about something that a child has done, particularly if that child has, has done something that you think is rather serious, we always try to do this to my knowledge, right? That we have some form of evidence. Your child cheated. Can you prove it? Yes. Here's the evidence, the documentation of their cheating. Because it is highly unlikely, for instance, that there are going to be two witnesses to that. But there are other forms of evidence. And again, I've gone a little bit off track, and perhaps a, 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 a worthwhile series sometime is to give some consideration to justice. But justice, folks, is God's primary consideration. And if I can use words that have become very precious to us in our culture, which I would argue are derived from the biblical writers. In other words, our founding fathers got them from biblical authors. God is very concerned that there is genuine due process in any accusation of wrongdoing. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 23. Verse number one, God wants there to be justice done. Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a clause to decline after many to rest judgment. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. In other words, just because he's poor doesn't mean he's right. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under his burden and would forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of the poor in his cause. Neither is he wrong simply because he is poor. 
Keep thee far from a false matter, and an innocent and righteous slay not, for I will not justify the wicked. And thou shalt take no gift, for gift blindeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So God is concerned, folks, about there being justice, and God is concerned that there is a process that is followed. That in the nation of Israel, there were not just priests, but there were judges. And there was a manner of figuring out who had the responsibility to hear the case and to make a judgment in the case. So back to the text of 1 Timothy chapter 5. James points out that those who are teachers, I think masters is the word in our King James Bible, will receive a greater condemnation. But they are not held to a higher standard, folks, because there is only one standard. There there just can't be a higher standard. There's, There's only one standard. We're all, we're all called to the same standard. So back to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want to pull just one word from verse number 20 and take it back to verse number 19. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses, any accusation against an elder must be, elder must be made legitimately. He's he's not guilty simply because one person says, you're guilty. If there's physical evidence, guilty. There are two people that can testify to the guilt, guilty. But one person cannot, to the satisfaction of the Lord, bring that kind of condemnation. And the subject matter, which is why I make reference to verse number 20, is sin. Now, every crime is at some level a sin, but not every sin is a crime. We know that. And we are talking here in this framework about dealing with a pastor's sins. In other words, folks, if I commit a sin, if I tell a lie, that's a sin, but it's not necessarily a crime. And so if I tell a sin, that is handled within the assembly. And we want to follow the Bible guidelines to the best that we can, verses 19 through 21. But if I commit a crime, if I have my hand in the church finances and am using them illegitimately for personal gain, that is not only a sin, that is additionally a crime. And so I would argue in that case, whether it be me or any other pastor, that if the activity is both sinful and criminal, that all of God's legitimate agencies need to be brought into the picture, that the church should deal with the sin component of it, and the civil authorities should deal with the criminal component of it, because God has given that authority to the civil. In other words, folks, it is really reprehensible what has gone on in so much of Christianity, even in 
conservative, Bible-believing Christianity, that we have covered up not only the sins of men, but the crimes they have committed and shielded them from the authorities when they are actually criminals. That is direct disobedience to the text of Scripture. But any accusation then, to go back to verse number 19, must be legitimate in nature. It must be legitimate in nature. Secondly, any accusation that is deemed reliable must then be handled openly. Right? In verse number 19, we have the accusation that is made. What if the accusation is found to be true? Well, then that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Those who are sinning, rebuke. Those who are sinning, rebuke. This is the typical Bible word. It means to rebuke, to convince, to reprove. It carries the idea of specifying the offense, demonstrating the evidence. Right? So there is some public addressing of the, of the sin that has been committed. The Greeks use it to have it, it's been translated to prove, to refute, to put right, to expose, to put to shame. Within the broader framework, right, one of the questions that we would ask about this, right, is that we're dealing with something that is sinful but probably not criminal. But we're also probably dealing with something that is sinful but is not necessarily ministry ending. In other words, right, and this is a whole other subject, are there sins that pastors commit, can commit that would disqualify them from pastoral ministry? And I think that there probably are. But Paul doesn't seem to be talking about them because his solution is to deal with the matter publicly. To deal with the matter publicly. The man is rebuked. He is not removed. His sin is identified. And this is done with the intent of conveying to the assembly that there is kind of a zero toleration policy when it comes to misbehavior in the community. Do this publicly, verse number 19, or verse number 20, that others also may fear. That seems to be what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when the church refused to deal with fornication properly was that in their toleration of this man's fornication, they were in effect creating an atmosphere in which others would feel liberty to commit that sin. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 5.
Right, so you have the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira and their lie. Their lie for their own glorification. And so in verse number 10, right, Ananias died and sometime later Sapphira come in, came into the presence of the apostles. Peter posed to her the same question. She gave the same lie. She also died. She suffered the same consequences. And so verse number 10, then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Which, by the way, in many fundamental ministries and in broader Christianity, one of the reasons we don't deal with some things is because we don't want to impede the ministry. We don't want that to get out because that will make the church look bad and the church already looks bad enough. But I would just point out, folks, that the biblical model thinks about the entire scenario a little bit differently. So that Ananias and Sapphira's death was publicized in some level. And great fear came upon the church. Verse number 13 Right? And the rest durst no man join himself to them. Right? So you have now the consequence of this is that there is apparently this serves to function in an evangelistic sense, verse number 12, but also in a deterrent sense in verse number 13. There were people who just flat out said, I'm not going around and hanging around those people. People die when they go to that church. So this again, folks, is consistent with what we've read in Deuteronomy chapter 19 in the logic of God in dealing with these things that there is an occasion to deal with these publicly for the intent of making it known to the congregation, to the assembly, that some behaviors are unacceptable. Now what we don't know here, right? I mean, what, what, we, what we don't get into is, is there, is there any other room within verse number 20? In other words, if you, if you confront somebody about their sin and they repent of their sin, does that need to be addressed publicly? Well, Matthew 18 would tell us no. Right? In Matthew 18, if you confront somebody about their sin and they accept responsibility for it, the matter is supposed to drop. Is that true, pastors? And how, would that, how does that work in our situation? Folks, there have been occasions that I have come to you and I've said, look, I did this and it was wrong and I apologize and I seek your forgiveness. But that technically doesn't fit what is being described in 1 Timothy 5.20. Because in 1 Timothy 5.20, Timothy is being given the responsibility to rebuke the elder. We only have one elder. And I'm just, I'm just saying that, right, as so much of what Paul says, he gives us some great guidelines, but we can always pose a question that we don't have a clear answer to. I think that we're safe I would think that we're safe in saying that confronted, recognized sin cannot be ignored and must periodically be addressed publicly, even if that is the pastor going, here's the sin, I did it. And sometimes, as we know, here is the sin, somebody else did it. But public sins require public comment. So elders may be corrected if they are accused legitimately. 
that accusation must be handled then openly. Them that sin rebuke before everybody. And thirdly, sinning pastors must be dealt with impartially. They do not get a pass because they're a pastor. It is just that simple. Verse number 21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Paul now, having instructed us to employ two or three witnesses, Paul now calls to himself two or three witnesses. Timothy, I command you in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Without prejudice is the idea. Without forming an opinion before all the facts are known. Right? Which I think has, right? Which, which I think we can go, I, because I think the implication of the verse is twofold. Right? The implication of the verse is, number one, that he should not be excused simply because he is a pastor. But I think the other implication is that he is not guilty simply because he is a pastor. I charge you to do these things without preferring one before another, without partiality. And without prejudice, doing nothing by partiality, without preferring one before another, prejudice, forming the opinion before the facts are known. Proverbs 18.13, of course, is our classic instructional passage. He that answereth the matter before he hear it, it is folly and shame to him. So, God does not, right? I mean, look, folks, right? We, we understand this. Right? There, there is a time and a place to deal with sin publicly, regardless of who the sinner is. Because God has very, very strong feelings about sin. And God executed his own son publicly because of sin. We are naive indeed to think that our sin, my sin, the pastor, would somehow be immune from those same kind of rigors if necessary. The church is to pursue purity, even among, especially among the elders. So there is a place for the correcting of elders, there is a way for elders to be corrected. There is a process that God has put in place to do that. So let us, again, <clears throat> let us endeavor to be obedient to the text of Scripture. Let's pray together tonight. Father, pray your blessing upon us always that <clears throat> we would be a church in the pursuit of of purity and that we would 
not at any level for anyone, ignore sin or sweep it under the rug, but that we would deal with it to whatever extent is necessary to put it away from us. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in just a moment we'll stand and we will have our closing song and just a couple of announcements. Reminder that a week from Wednesday, Patch and Pee Wee Patch resume and also that Wednesday night we will be observing the Lord's table and I just mentioned that for information. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll have our closing song and we'll be dismissed. We'll turn to hymn 309. We'll sing the first verse of There is a Fountain. Hymn 309.